Continuing our study of Peter's second letter, and I uh, would like to look at you, look with you rather, at just one verse this evening, and not the verse that I have in the bulletin. Sorry, the verse right before I uh, put the wrong one in there. Verse nine. I've I've, I've had uh, uh, various questions about this in the last couple of weeks, and I think. If uh, a couple of you are asking the same, the same questions, perhaps many of you have the same ones. We've uh, tried to uh, explain uh, passages like this before and always feel like it's uh, important to explain things in new ways, not only so that we can understand, but be also good uh, students for the sake of others. Here now from Second Peter, let's go uh, back to verse 8 as... Um, He's talking about the delay in Christ's return. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, the part for today, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, let us pray once more. Our Father in heaven, we pray that this uh, part of your word and uh, the many that are like it should enlighten our minds, remind us again of your good purposes as well as of your uh, holy desires and will for this world that we too, sharing such desires and passions, may see the end of these things, uh, see people coming to repentance and being saved from perishing. You have uh, given to us that calling as your ambassadors, of whom Peter was also counted one in the first generation. So we in our generation seek to be understanding and faithful in all these things. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, uh, C.S. Lewis in his uh, book that some of our ladies have been studying together, Mere Christianity, describes uh, a situation in which... uh, we often find ourselves as parents, where something is according to our will in one sense, but not according to our will in another. For example, he writes, a mother might say to her children, I'm not going to make you go and tidy up the schoolroom every night. You've got to learn to keep it tidy on your own. Now, we've all had conversations like that We were parents. But then one day, of course, the mother goes up one night and she finds the teddy bear and the ink and the French grammar all lying in the grate. And this is against her will. She would prefer the children to be tidy. But on the other hand, it is her will which has left the children free to be untidy. The same thing arises in any regiment or trade union or school. You make something voluntary and half the people don't do it. This is not what you willed, but your will has made it possible. Well, certainly we know what it's like to have something that is according to our will, but not according to our will. And uh, the Bible speaks in a similar way about the Lord and about his will for this world. But God has a very different experience, uh, if if I could put it that way, uh, with his uh, rebellious creatures than we do. Uh, We who are parents are simply not able to uh, make our children to do all that uh, we desire. But the Lord is under no such compulsion. And so how are we to understand uh, this situation in which uh, things are taking place in this world 
contrary to God's revealed will, people are committing all kinds of heinous acts of sin, even this very moment. And yet, uh, here we have a God who is omnipotent. How are we to understand these things and hold them together? Well, that's a big question, and I'll try to uh, make a good stab at it by concentrating on this text and several that are like it this evening. First, I would like to tell you about God's moral will. My first point to you is God's moral will. What do I mean, God's moral will? I mean God's good. God is good all the time. He desires what is right and good and righteous, and he desires righteousness and holiness from us. And this is called in the Bible the will of God. So, for example, Paul writes, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you should be holy. A little later in the same letter, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He wills that you be a thankful people. That is his will. Not everyone everyone obeys that will, obviously, his moral will. Uh, John laments that fact. He writes, the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. There are some who disobey that moral will. There are some who do that moral will. Jesus likewise says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. In what sense? In this moral sense. Jesus has said, repent and believe the gospel. Some people disobeyed that. Some people obeyed that. And those who have done the will of his Father will at last be with him on that day. And Peter uses the, the, the word in the same sense several times, actually. In the first letter, he writes, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So, everything that is good, that is right, that is righteous, that is according to God's command in his word, that is according to his nature and character, is called the will of God. Get it? The moral will of God. Uh, That is to say, what is what is good and right. And uh, we pray that that will might be done. I prayed it earlier, that, that God's uh, will would be done in earth as it is in heaven, um, and that thereby his kingdom come and his name would be hallowed. And uh, what do we pray? Well, we're, we're, what do we mean when we pray that? Well, that, that God would take away all blindness, weakness, unwillingness, perverseness of heart, and by his grace make us able and willing to know and to do and to submit to his will in all things says our larger catechism. So, the Bible has this as the will of God, okay? I don't want to beat a dead horse. There are many other examples, even in Peter's first letter. But um, when God commands all men everywhere to repent, it's because turning from sin to God in Christ is a good thing. This is God's will, his moral will. God is not at all pleased with man's unrepentance, and he rebukes it sharply. And he wants men, he desires men, and therefore commands men to turn to him and live. Ezekiel 33, that famous passage, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn. 
Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? He pleads with sinful men to turn and live. And there is great joy in the presence of the angels that is in God. When one sinner repents more than the 99 who need no repentance, this is what God desires, this is what God commands, and uh, this is what is right. We must desire such things also. Jesus preaches, repent and believe the gospel, and says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The one who comes to me, I'll by no means cast out, we read earlier. So why does he do this? Because God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4. God could desire nothing else besides what is right and good, because God is good. He must desire and delight in and approve of and therefore command all that is right and good in his creatures. God desires men to turn to him and be saved. And he delights when they do it. He urges, implores, passionately pleads with them. Turn from your evil ways. Our God is a God who says, look, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Or as Jesus draws near Jerusalem that last time, he weeps. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Uh, Breaks Jesus' heart. His want, his desire is that, that they come to him and be saved. He pleads with them. He commands them. He begs them. And he rejoices when they heed uh, uh, such word. God's will is that all the ends of the earth turn to him and be saved. For, verse 9, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is his moral will. A desire, a delight in, an approval of, a command to do all that is good and right supremely, turning from sin to him in Christ and being saved, coming to a repentance unto life. Now, of course, you think, well, wait a minute, aren't there some other (laughs) passages in the Bible? Yeah, Peter himself uh, uses the word in another sense, which is sometimes called in theology God's will of decree. God's will of decree. And I'm not trying to be slippery here. Let me just start with some verses. I'll start with some clearer verses, I hope. Uh, Ephesians 1, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things that take place are happen according to the counsel or decree of his will. In this sense, nothing disobeys his will. Uh, Solomon says that even the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and like the streams of water, he turns it wherever he will. God turns the heart of the king according to his good pleasure whenever he desires to whatever he desires. Not one sparrow falls to the ground, Jesus says, apart from your father's will. Not one sparrow. Everything is in his hand. This is God's will, as the theologians again say, of decree or of sovereign decree, by which God governs, restrains, and rules over even the sinful actions of sinful men in order that they 
could only fulfill his good purposes by their evil. And as we read this morning, therefore, God can even use evil for good. Even what men mean for evil, God is able to make it serve our salvation. Or Acts chapter 4, speaking of the worst evil in history, the crucifixion of the Son of God, we read that truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose or will determined before to be done. Here is God's will of decree by which kings, peoples, all things in the earth do according to his will. Uh, If you'll allow me to summarize many things I can't uh, stop to prove now, but uh, point you to our Confession of Faith, chapter 3, has uh, a nice little summary at the beginning. God from all eternity did by his own most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty and contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. See, that sounds like a sermon series. Well, I can't stop to explain it all to you, but there's important qualifiers. Nevertheless, all that takes place in this world is called God's will. Peter uses the phrase himself in that sense. He writes in his first letter about those persecuted Christians as the ones who suffer according to the will of God. I mean, persecution of Christians is not his moral will, right? He, he's very angry about that, as a matter of fact. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, nevertheless, in this sense, according to the will of God means according to his sovereign decree. Okay, God has appointed even the sufferings of this present time, just as he has appointed our salvation chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. This is the reason why some are elected, why some are appointed, why some are ordained to everlasting life, the good pleasure of his will, God's will of decree. And by it, we are saved. Um, And one more sentence from our confession of faith uh, has some important things to say. That the almighty power and unsearchable wisdom and infinite goodness of God are so far manifesting themselves in his providence that they extend even to the first fall. Say, wait a minute. The fall, according to God's will, his will of decree? Uh, Could could not God have uh, intervened and crushed the head of the snake right there before he even spoke a word? In him we live and move and have our being. Before the foundation of the world, the Lamb had a book of life. That is to say, all those things were already ordained and appointed. The fall as well as Christ's salvation before there was a single atom in this world. Before its creation. All right, back to the, back to the point. It's even in his providence, even to the first fall and to all other sins of angels and men. And not just by a bare permission, but that he is joined with it a most holy, wise, and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in many ways 
by his, uh, to his own holy ends or purposes. Yet so, as the sinfulness proceeds only from the creature, not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Once again, a sermon series is in that, but uh, some important qualifications. Everything that's going on, it's going on at least by God's permission, and not just by permission only. That somehow, in guiding and directing and governing all the events of this world toward his own holy ends, even what men mean for evil are going to be used for good. Even that Pilate and Herod and the, and the Jews and the, and the Gentiles all being gathered together to murder the innocent Son of God, that greatest crime becomes the greatest thing that's ever happened in the world for us and for our salvation. That's how God is able to work. And this is uh, called his will of decree in theology. Um, So I've tried to contrast for you uh, what in the Bible is called God's will, his moral will, his commands, which is different from his will of decree, what he has ordained. Not everybody obeys his moral will, that's for sure. But no creature escapes his will of decree. All things are governed by him. Now, many people find their head hurts at this point. In fact, many people have been taught that these two things cannot coexist, and that if you believe in one, you can't believe the other. And if you only believe in the moral will of God, you say, well, hey, if, if he's telling us that we need to repent and believe, therefore he can't be the uh, author of our faith. He can't give, give, give faith and repentance as a gift. Um, okay, so as soon as you believe in one or the other, you become unorthodox in one way or another. If you only believe in the moral will, probably the proper term for your theology is Arminian, although I'm not here to call names. I'm just trying to make some theologians here uh, say, uh, understand, or if you kids want to ask your parents, say, oh, yeah, who's that Jacob Arminius guy? Okay, James Arminius. Then, so if you, if you think that there's only this desire for men to turn to God and be saved, but you don't have this other side of God's decree, then you, you fall off on one side, the Arminian side of the error. But then... Some people read all these passages in the Bible and they come to the opposite conclusion on the other side. They, 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 they make the same mistake. You can't have both. So they, they throw off this moral side and they just have the will of decree. And they say, well, the reason the people aren't saved is because God doesn't desire them to be saved at all. He, uh, he hates the wicked. He detests the wicked all day long. And therefore, uh, that's, their, that's, their, that's their fate. Um, and uh, they, they uh, stagger over other verses like the one that's here. Well, I'm putting it before you. The Bible describes the will of God in both of these senses because our God does, on the one hand, desire, delight, and command man's salvation. And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And on the other hand, as Peter wrote about unrepentant people in chapter 2 of his first letter, and if you haven't seen that passage, you, you do need to see it because uh, this will rock your world if you, if you, unless you wrestle with this. Um, it's by our same, by our same author. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8, we, where we read about uh, the ungodly who uh, stumble over the stumbling stone of Jesus and therefore are not saved. 
uh, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. That uh, passive were appointed means were appointed by God. He's the only one that appoints the future. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, and so forth. Okay? So here is the difference made in humanity. Some that receive Jesus as a precious cornerstone, some that find him a scandal on, a stumbling block. And the difference here, why do some obey the word and some disobey the word? Well, some were appointed to disobey, but we have been chosen to become his own special people. Uh, just using the words from the passage. Or Paul summarizes it this way. God has mercy on whom he wills. He wills. And whom he wills, he hardens. God has appointed some men to heed his word unto salvation and others to be disobedient to that word. Or as Romans says, God gives them over to that debased mind, to the darkness and the damnation which they have truly desired. Now, someone will ask, um, these are deep waters. Does this matter? What does it matter if you believe in something like this will of decree or not? I mean, if he says that we should evangelize, isn't that enough? Why do we have to have this other side of the equation? And so for the next few minutes, I'd like to say why we need to believe in God's will of decree and why we need to believe in God's moral will. Because even though these are deep waters, these are very important matters. Consider God's will of, his, his moral will and his will of decree. Now, why do you need to believe in that will of decree? Well, once again, I can only summarize it for you, but our confession of faith does have a nice practical paragraph on God's eternal decree. Chapter 3, verse, uh, paragraph 8. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination, specifically, is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending to the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual calling be assured of their eternal election, that this may afford praise, reverence, admiration of God, and humility, diligence, and abundant consolation or comfort to all who sincerely obey the gospel. Scripture proofs after all those phrases. I'll come back to some of them in a minute. But in the Bible, this is not a fighting doctrine. Uh, this is a doctrine for praise, for comfort, for encouragement, and for diligence, as well as other things. When we understand that uh, God's will of decree uh, governs everything that happens, then we can be like Job. Remember, as Job began to lose those things that he cared about in his life, he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And he can add, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, of course, it was by the Chaldean and Sabean raiders and uh, this uh, uh, lightning from heaven and all the fire of God from heaven, which ultimately came from the devil, of course, um, which ultimately came by the permission of God and not just the permission, but his good purposes. Okay. Um, but the Bible says he did not sin in this and that 
that, that Job was a righteous man. There can be no proper submission to God's will until there's an acknowledgement of God's hand. And we must acknowledge God's goodness in every blessing that he gives us. For God, who has determined our pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings, Acts 17, does continue to limit and govern and overrule the sinful actions of evil men so that all things must work together for our good, as we read this morning. And we are to take confidence in this. And we are to commit ourselves, therefore, to the Lord cheerfully and expectantly, knowing that despite all the wicked things that are going on in the world and all the raging of the, of the ungodly and, and the wiles of the devil, even though evil is going to have its day on earth, God's will ultimately will prevail. And therefore, we can keep going in hope. So as far as the gospel is concerned also, we need to recognize that this is powerful hope for everyone. Right? You believe in a, 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 a God who has a decree for salvation that will be effected in the earth? Well, that means that, friends, no sin is too big for our God. And no sinner is too obstinate. And we can approach the most hopeless situations and the most helpless people knowing that salvation is not of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who has mercy. Paul a wicked, hard, inveterate sinner becomes a beautiful picture of this as God makes him his chief ambassador to the nations. And Paul can say, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Look, God can save that lost friend of yours. God can heal that hopeless marriage. God can cure that destitute drug addict. When William Carey worked in India without a single convert for one year, two years, three years, four years, five years, so forth. When seven years in, Krishna Pal was finally converted. He wrote, there was only one, but a continent was coming behind him. Uh, God, has, God has appointed the salvation uh, of Christ to go to every tribe and tongue and people and nation, all the families of the earth, as we read this morning, he knew this, God's decree of salvation will be fulfilled in the earth. And the divine grace that changed one Indian's heart can obviously change a hundred million. Well, we must be humble and patient in our witness. As Paul writes to Timothy, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach patient and humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God will perhaps grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. That's to be our approach. You can't do all those things unless you believe in the will of decree. God's sovereignty never hinders our action nor destroys our responsibility. And as a matter of fact, as I mentioned earlier, these doctrines are especially used in the evangelistic messages of the Bible to break hard, proud hearts, usually of of the hardest people, right? So that David Brainerd wrote about the kind of preaching God blessed in the uh, Great Revival and the uh, Evangelical Revival, Great Awakening. Those doctrines, he said, which had the most direct tendency to humble the fallen creature, to show him the misery of his natural state, to bring him down to the foot of sovereign mercy and to exalt the great Redeemer. These were the subject matter 
of what was delivered. These were the things that God had blessed. All right. So that's why you need to believe in God's will of decree. But you also need to believe in God's moral will, brothers and sisters. If you don't share God's desire for man's salvation, you will be a heartless and ineffective evangelist. We think of uh, Paul once again, who uh, writes with such passion about these doctrines of grace, and yet he is able to say, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing witness, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. I could wish myself accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He goes on and says how he prays for them, how he labors for them. He has the same passion, the same desire as God. Now, um, Arminianism is... uh, uh, a, a grievous error denying the glory of God. But I think overall, hyper-Calvinism is a worse error. For an Arminian, although terribly misunderstanding the gospel, nevertheless at least is able to plead with men and urge them on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. The hyper-Calvinist, on the other hand, although he is terribly misunderstood also, is in worse shape because he's not able to plead earnestly with men. He doesn't even think that God desires their salvation in any sense of that word. And both are terrible errors with terrible consequences, but hyper-Calvinism makes man fatalistic and fruitless. So, you know, why should we evangelize? That's an important question, right? Why should we evangelize? Well, we could Think of a uh, commonly given answer, um, uh, better of simple obedience. Uh, go and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16, we, we need to consider uh, the number of passages in the Bible where it, it, we, we are appointed to be his witnesses. Fair, fair enough, it's a matter of simple obedience. But if it's only obedience and there is no heart, there is no longing, there is no desire, it will, it will show. It will affect the kind of uh, way that you speak to people. Um, you will not be, as we read uh, last week, um, as ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That's a very different thing than simple obedience. That is an urgency, a passion. That shared again by the apostle. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, wrote the apostle. Right, right after Romans 9. I have this passion and this desire and it shows, and it drives him on. And he speaks so effectively and writes so passionately in order that he might, as it were, have Christ pleading through him. One of the great problems that God's people have historically uh, had is hard-heartedness, that our hearts grow just as callous as the ungodly people around us. Ezekiel ministered in such a time when the hearts of God's people were as hard as a rock. And even though the judgment had already begun, and God told his prophet not only what to say, but how to feel. 
Sigh, therefore, son of man. Sigh with a breaking heart. Sigh with bitterness before their eyes. This, this people will not repent. And it is an awful thing. I want you to cry before them. Some people said that was Whitfield's great secret, by the way. Not only did he have this magnificent voice, of course, he wept. He wept before his audience over them again and again. So this is not a theoretical, theological discussion. This passage brings before us great matters of practical urgency. If God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, if he delays return in this world in order to give time for the ungodly to turn, then that does encourage us to get to work. We are discussing matters of eternal life and death, of salvation or damnation. And until that day comes and the final irrevocable judgment falls upon this world, we too need to pray that God would make us tender-hearted ambassadors of His grace as we need to be, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We need to command people, yes, exhort them, reprove them, warn them, and plead with them, even as God pleads. So we must be able to do the same by having God's heart in the matter, believing in God's moral will. All right? We've seen the moral will. We've seen the will of decree. We've seen why we need to have that will of decree and why we need to have that moral will. Um, I'll uh, close by reminding you that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We uh, call him that in uh, uh, our songs, right from the Gospel of John. Um, Why do we call him that? Well, uh, surely not because every single person in the world is going to be saved. That's abundantly clear. But let's look at what is told here. God's people are going to be saved from every tongue and tribe and nation on the earth. In that seed, every family shall be blessed. And this is what we are to desire, knowing that it has been decreed and it will surely be done. For in this way, God has loved the world. The world itself will someday be reborn and renewed as the final act and crowning achievement of Christ's salvation, as we read this morning. God loves this world that he has made and the people of it so much that he is going to restore it to paradise regained. And God has loved the world in this way. God has a heart of love for all men and so extends himself and offers his salvation sincerely to all. The free offer of the gospel, nice paper on uh, that by uh, Murray and Stonehouse if somebody wants to look it up. And so we likewise uh, find these passages to encourage all, whosoever will may come, addressed to the world. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Um, And um, him who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. So here then are these uh, reminders that God's purpose for the world is uh, a good desire and a faithful decree. This gives us deep gratitude for God, for all of the good things that we have received in life ourselves through Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. We know that this is a good decree. This keeps us from despair 
It gives us patience, comfort, strength, and hope through suffering and adversity. Even in times of loss, we know that the Lord has given and the Lord will take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is a good decree. This causes us to marvel at God's unsearchable wisdom because He works all things together somehow in some counsel of His will for His glory and for our good. A good decree. This gives us a joyful trust in our God for the future. That as He spared not His own Son, He will surely give us freely all things in Him and He will accomplish His will through us. A good decree. It frees us to obey with confidence even when obedience appears very risky, if not foolish, by the world's standards. Because God's sovereignty encourages us in risk-taking obedience, enduring all things, even for the sake of God's elect, that they too may, may attain God's salvation. Do not fear, Jesus said when He sent out his disciples, you're of more value than many sparrows, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will, a good decree. This gives us a deeper trust in God who will accomplish all of his purposes that not one can fail of all his promises, a good decree. It gives us great encouragement and confidence in prayer that he can do what we ask. We can ask for salvation, and he can grant it. We never have to feel overwhelmed Uh, This gives us courage and boldness and destroys bitterness and complaining, showing us how to be satisfied in all things at all times, knowing that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Did you get all that? Uh, These are big, big heady matters, and yet so practical. As we come to face the difficulties, the trials, the, um, the time for our courage in this life, We are looking not to our own resources. We are looking to a God who desires what is good and who accomplishes his holy will. Let us commit ourselves to him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you once again as a people in need of your goodness and greatness. You are great and you are good. We need instruction, counsel, wisdom, and encouragement. We need reproof and correction. We need you to work in this world to accomplish all that you have ordained in order that we might also rejoice in your salvation going to all nations. We pray for uh, those whom we love, who need this saving grace, even as you do not desire the death of the wicked, but have told him to turn. So we pray that as we plead, that you would plead through us, that we would speak so effectively that a great number would believe. We confess that salvation is of the Lord. So, O Lord, be merciful. We Thank you again for the great wonders and glories and mysteries that you reveal to us in your word. Give us grace to know you, that we may serve you aright.